And I'll make it clear that how you retire and what you do in retirement is a very individual thing. And I've seen people go cold turkey and never look back and have a great retirement and do great. And people who otherwise wanted to find things to keep busy were successful in doing that. Welcome to Mitten Money, delivering insights from Michigan-based business leaders, big and small. William Zank, host of Mitten Money at TriStar Trust, loves nothing more than creating this masterclass so that you can get insight to guide your leadership journey in just under 30 minutes. Subscribe today and connect with William at mittenmoney.com. What's going on, everyone? You're listening to another episode of Mitten Money. Quick question for everyone out there. Have you thought about what you want to do in retirement? Maybe it's sitting on a beach somewhere, which doesn't sound too bad currently, or possibly tinkering with a long-term hobby. For some, the itch to continue working extends well past when that traditional retirement date might be. So if that's the case, you know, when do you even start planning for that? How would you go about making that switch? Today's episode focuses on how Don Sheets, the former executive vice president and chief financial officer at Dow Corning, pivoted into consulting, something that he was planning for many years. We first chat about some of the crucial moments where he demonstrated leadership while working at Dow Corning, which included overseeing the emergence from Chapter 11 bankruptcy and helping lead the growth of the company's silicone business on a global scale. Later on, we chat about how he made his pivot into consulting and talk about some of his favorite shows that he currently watches. So Don, in doing research for this podcast, I understand that after you graduated from Albion College, you went on to work for Dow Corning and had a very successful career. I saw that you were involved with many major milestones for the company, including leading the development and implementation of the Xiameter internet business, which ended up being wildly successful for the company. So since that launch, the business model has been researched and published studies and articles for how groundbreaking that technology was. And so looking back now, what gave you the foresight and confidence to lead Dow Corning into the space? There were a number of things that probably contributed to my ability to do that. First, you mentioned educational background. Albion College is a liberal arts college, and the philosophy of a liberal arts education is a very broad and deep education in a variety of of areas and disciplines with a focus on education more for its own sake than for what it can do in the job world for you. So I, I came out of Albion with great exposure to lots of areas, lots of diversity and knowledge, and interested in pursuing that kind of an approach in my life. I found that I liked all that, and it was really college that opened my my eye to that. Dow Corning was unique in that it offered new young employees a diverse mix of career experiences. That's what, you know, Dow Corning was known for moving people around the company and putting them in different jobs and different places and and really developing their overall business breadth. So that kind of matched with what I was coming out of college, kind of liking about my education. And so I ended up with a variety of diverse career experiences at Dow Corning and ended up in Dow Corning having a culture of people development that just fed that over the years. And by the time I got to the point where the internet was on the scene and the company was sort of groping for for what to do and how to enter that business, I had satisfied a lot of curiosity and done a lot of hard work over a lot of years in the company, had a good, good knowledge of the company and all the requisite skills to sort of be thrown at a problem like that. And, you know, I was fortunate to have a great group of people around me as well to help kind of pull that off in the end. But It ended up being quite a pioneering achievement, far more so than we thought it might be at the time. But it was a real manifestation of looking at the world broadly and through multiple lenses and disciplines at the same time. And so if you don't mind me double-clicking on that idea for a second, 
what was that timeline for when you may have had that first initial meeting that saying, you know, maybe developing this technology could be a good space to go into to that actual implementation? Was that a, a six-month process, a year process? How, how long was that process? From the day I was given the job, which was a, a shock of my career to that point, that wasn't where I felt like I was headed or wanted to go, to the time that we actually implemented something was about 18 months. We pushed hard. And the leadership lessons around getting that done in a large multinational corporation is a different podcast. But suffice to say that it took a lot of energy. It took a lot of bridge building. It took a couple of bridges being burned, frankly, to get it done. And a determination that honestly, at the time going into it, I didn't know I had. But I learned about myself that once I get really committed to something, it's pretty hard to get me diverted from achieving the goal. So with some really good people and some really good talent, we got it done very, very quickly. Sure, that makes sense. And so over that next decade, you also demonstrated your leadership abilities through guiding Dow Corning out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2004 and later through the great financial crisis. And so what were your thoughts as you were leading the company through both of those events and what kept you motivated and determined? Yeah, those are two very different things. The Chapter 11 matter, I became CFO at Dow Corning. We were already in Chapter 11. And by the time I was involved with it, it was well along in the process of moving through Chapter 11. So it was more of a technical thing that simply required hard work and patience. But it was largely myself and a few financial people and our general counsel and some lawyers who were really guiding it and working through the process at that point. So I was fortunate not to have to deal with it at the beginning when the company was facing the decision to go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So it was a more technical matter, and it was patience with our legal system, which is sometimes very difficult to do, and a determination to get it done, but keeping the emotion out of it. Emotional volatility really doesn't help a lot when you're going through a complicated legal process, and I did learn that. The financial crisis was just a horrifyingly scary time for everybody in business and especially in financial roles and financial jobs. The watchword was we had to aggressively protect the company's assets and its financial capacity. And that was an hourly job. For 18 months to a couple of years, it's almost all I did was focus on the issues that reverberated from the financial crisis. We had banks that were teetering on the edge of solvency. We had, we were doing a lot of expansions and a lot of growth at the time. So we needed access to capital and we needed to keep those projects going. And that, that was kind of running against the herd a little bit there in terms of, of what we needed to do to protect the company. But it was a, frankly, an exhausting time and a very sad time in many ways. And frankly, a lot of relationships that the company had for many years, you know, really never were the same after that. And some of them just ended because the banks or the whatever the counterparty, whoever it might be, just couldn't be there for you. And that's why you have them. And when they can't be there for you, you have to go do other things. So it was a, that was a tough time, but you have to believe things are going to get better. You know, even though you're in the depths of it, you have to believe that at some point we're going to come out of this. And of course we did. And, you know, we're all here today and we didn't lose anybody. So that's all fine, but it was a tough time. So talking about the great financial crisis a little further, what was that point in time as you were guiding your company through all this that you kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel and you, you were saying to yourself, okay, we're going to be good. We're going to make it through this okay. I can see kind of... I know that the shocks were more longer lasting for some people, but 
towards yourself, what was kind of that one moment where you kind of saw, okay, I can see the end of this. We're going to make it as a company and we're going to continue moving forward on that path. I distinctly remember sitting in my office watching, I had a, a television screen in there with the volume off and watching Congress take the votes on the bailout plan or the, wasn't the bailout plan and the name of the exact program that Bernanke came up with and Secretary Paulson came up with. The first vote, they turned it down. And that was the lowest point of the financial crisis for me, which is if, okay, the U.S. government can't get its act together and figure out how to help here. We're in deep, deep trouble. Then a couple of days later, or very shortly thereafter, the epiphany happened, and they actually voted to move it through. Once they did that, and it became clear, and that made more transparent what the Fed was going to do, what the Treasury was going to do, and it proved to be very successful. And so I think it was when they voted finally to move it forward that I felt like, okay, we're going to pull out of this power dive we're in here. And, you know, it may be expensive, but everybody's committed now. And so that that was the moment. I watched it and I can't tell you how despairing it was when they turned it down the first time. That was like all is lost. And that's how everybody felt about it. Then they figured out what they needed to do. I know another thing you did while at Dow Corning was growing the silicone business on a global scale. And so what were some of those first steps to identify where to grow and also what products to focus on? Dow Corning from its founding is a growth-oriented company. So I came into that company and I was literally bathed in the culture of growth and particularly pioneering growth. So Dow Corning, both technology-wise, was a pioneering company coming up with materials that had never existed before and bringing them to new markets and new parts of the world in a pioneering way. So that was something that was pretty deep within me and the other leaders in the company who grew up in the company. So growth, a couple of things we needed to do to grow. One is we always kept a close eye on the consumption of silicones over the world, kind of in each country. So in a simple way, you know, how many kilos of silicones per capita are being consumed in, you say, the United States and Western Europe and Japan, which is probably the benchmark for fully developed. And that's what's going on in China or India or Australia or wherever. And we could see in a general sense, you know, where there would be future demand for silicones, where there was a gap of capacity to grow. So we made sure that we had assets in those countries, people in those countries. And that gets to the the notion of the CFO. And, and in that role, you're the allocator of capital, kind of a last resort. You are the person who's sort of making sure those resources, both capital and people, are available around the world to support that. So the worst thing you could do is have a bunch of growth show up in a country and then have no strategy, no assets, no no people, no ability to participate in that growth, which lets other competitors in. And, and in many ways, Dow Corning learned over the years that incumbency in a new country is really important. And it's really hard to, to knock someone out of the incumbent position if you let them get in in front of you. So we were a little paranoid about that. And that was part of Dow Corning's success. And the last thing is the new product side of things and making sure we were feeding resources and capital to the innovation side of the company. So those new products would keep coming out in places like the U.S. and Western Europe could continue to grow as the electronics industry really hit its stride, aerospace, other big industries that needed high-tech materials that we were participating in those as well. So a very exciting mix of chess pieces on the board to make sure they were getting the resources that they need in order for the company to grow. 
Sure. Yeah, that all makes great sense. And so now pivoting our podcast and now talking about consulting more. So after your time at Dow Corning, I see that you're now involved with many local and national organizations and see that you've even opened your own consulting practice. And so what inspired the shift into consulting? Was this something that you thought of doing before you retired? Yes. I've participated a lot in retirement conversations during my career with people who work for me, friends and others who had retired and tried to learn and understand the best practices, if you will, that might apply to me. And I'll make it clear that how you retire and what you do in retirement is a very individual thing. And I've seen people go cold turkey and never look back and have a great retirement and do great. And people who otherwise you know, wanted to find things to keep busy were successful in doing that. I was the CFO at Dow Corning for almost 15 years. And that pace of life and work life was such that I just didn't feel I was going to be comfortable just stopping cold turkey. And I'm fairly young when I retired, about 57. So I still wanted to do some work. Now, lots of people do. The question is, well, how do you do that? And probably about literally 10 or 15 years before I retired, I was thinking about, I need to do things in retirement. And I'm going to broaden what I work on, both in terms of nonprofit and community service projects, as well as professional boards and seats and things like that. And again, that culture of Dow Corning really facilitated that because we were encouraged to do that, to grow professionally. So I ended up learning an awful lot while I was still working in a variety of fields, healthcare, real estate, finance, and banking. Also in the nonprofit sector, I spent a lot of time on boards there. And that resume that I built, if you will, was such that when I chose to retire, it wasn't just, oh, here's the CFO of Dow Corning who's retired now. It was, wow, here's a guy that has an enormous breadth, there's a theme here, of experiences and knowledge that can be very beneficial, perhaps, to us. And so I found that to be, it's a pretty competitive field. Everybody wants to go on a board, right, when they retire. And it's actually a very hard thing to do. And so I find, I've been well served by that variety of experiences rather than be kind of a one-trick pony. I can offer a fair amount of breadth to organizations and that that's helped. Sure. And then in your opinion, do you think it's more common for people within certain industries to go in, into consulting versus others? Yeah, it varies in terms of the ease with which one can do that and what the needs are. In my case, you know, having been in a professional associate, you know, my professional roles, I'm an ideal person to serve like an audit as an audit committee chair, which nobody else wants to do, right? There the, you know, you have to go to finance people like me who've, who've operated at a high level, who kind of get that and who who are okay doing it. And so so for senior financial executives, it's a pretty good path to think about. If you've thought about it sometime, if you think about it on day one of retirement, you're a little late to the party because you need more than just your your professional, whatever you did in your day job. But in other fields, it is difficult for folks to get those seats and to get those positions. And so the pre-planning of that is really important to do, even if it's nonprofit work. You know, you don't just present yourself at age 60 to a bunch of nonprofits and say, okay, here I am, I'm done working, now I'm ready to help you out. Now, they'll take you up on it. But if you haven't worked in that sector before, you have less value to offer them until you get your, you know, you get your your feet wet, if you will, and understand what what the thing is all about. People oversimplify kind of what the nonprofit sector and, you know, well, how hard can that be? It can be really hard and really challenging at times. And so it's, it's something that, that requires a bit of thought before you you jump in. 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And so for yourself, whether you're serving as a trustee or possibly on the member of a board of directors, how did you become involved with so many different organizations? I know you touched on this in your couple of the prior answers a little bit, but kind of diving deeper into that topic specifically. Did you have a game plan or kind of a map of kind of what you what organizations that you wanted to be involved with? Or are these opportunities kind of happening happenstance due to the relationships that you formed throughout your career? I had a few sources that guided me. One was just other professionals. I had a a CFO at Dow Chemical at one point say to me, you know, you really should serve on the board of a bank. That's a really good thing for you to do. And so I did. I went and, you know, I ended up on the board of Wolverine Bank in, in Midland. Very valuable experience. We ended up taking that bank public and then ultimately selling the bank. And so, you know, you can imagine just the knowledge and learning one would get there. So I've had good advice from mentors over the years. Frankly, my spouse, Angela, has guided me. Our work with Shelter House in Midland came through Angela's involvement with Shelter House and ended up with us doing a project right after I retired to raise funds for a new Shelter House facility in Midland, which was incredibly rewarding and gratifying and and called upon all all of our skills as a couple and relationships to sort of pull that off in the end. But that was a very satisfying thing. I'd rank that very high. Other things are just sort of stuff I like. Albion College has been very important to me, so I've served as a trustee there. That was just love for the college that drove that. There's no fees or anything that come with that. That's a pure volunteer role, and it's a lot of work. And then out of that, I ended up, because Gerald R. Ford, former president, was a trustee at Albion, and the college had a relationship with him, I ended up on his presidential foundation board as a trustee. I have found that to be very interesting and in the world of leadership and politics and civics and civil discourse and all of that. So it's a variety of things that I have, I've heard the call to, and I just found the time to do it. That's the hard thing, really, Bill, is the sense that, you know, even though I've got a full life and there's a lot going on, and we're not even talking about families and husbands and sons and, you know, all of that. But even so, there's always a place and always a time to help and to pursue your interests. And so I've been fortunate to find a way to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And so now time for our new lightning round of questions. So first and foremost, what would you say, Don, is your most important daily habit? I think without question, I'm an early riser. I I always have been. It's a habit I can't break from my working days. And then and now I get up and I, I read early in the morning and mostly news and information. I, I don't want to keep, I'll check in during the course of the day, but I'm, I'm, I'm a, I want to get my fill of what's going on in the world and then go and go do. Or I'll read for pleasure in the mornings, but I like to have about an hour in the morning to just, that's my private time that, you know, a great cup of coffee. I've gotten pretty much better in retirement at making coffee, so I'm able to do that. So, you know, that that is, those are moments that are just precious to me and give me a lot of fuel for the day. What's your favorite TV or streaming show that you're currently watching or you have recently? Oh, gosh, man. We've been through a lot of them during the, the pandemic. I think everybody has. We're all, you know, trying these, especially these British shows that we've never heard of, you know, listening to those and stuff. But we've actually... Just this week, we finished the first half of the last Ozark series, and we got, for some reason, hooked on that when it came out. And so we've been pretty pretty careful watchers of that. And so we have to pace that out. We don't binge anything. You know, we just kind of watch one or two and then let it soak in and then come back a few days later. So we're keeping up with Ozark. 
We love Better Call Saul. That's coming back, which we we really enjoyed that. Um, looking forward to that coming back. And and for a romp, we like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's a throwback. I'll speak for myself. I can almost remember some of the stuff they're getting into now in terms of the early 60s or the mid 60s. So that's kind of fun too. So we do that. We don't watch a lot of other TV, frankly, now. We're mostly streaming content. We don't really watch network TV anymore, unless there's a basketball game like there was last night or something like that. Yeah, definitely. No, Jason Bateman and Ozark, I would have to second that recommendation or that watch. Now moving on to our last lightning round question. So Don, if you could be remembered for just one thing, what would it be? Apart from being a good husband and father and a family person, I think the word that comes to my mind is reliability. Someone that can be counted on so that if I say I'm going to do something, you can rely on me. I'm going to do it. Corporately, that was always in my mind that no matter what it was, if I said I was going to do it, I'll do it. And conversely, if I said I wasn't going to do it, I absolutely would not do it. I mean, so it, it cuts both ways. But I would love to be remembered as someone who could have been, he was, he was a guy we could count on. He would get the job done. He would get the task done. And he would put his shoulder into it to make sure it got done right. So that's the word I'd use. Sure. That's pretty cool. And so for those who want to learn more about yourself, what are some good resources for the listeners out there? Well, there's not a whole lot on me. Nobody's written a book yet, nor will they. But my LinkedIn profile, I do keep it current with respect to what's going on. And I derive a bit of pleasure from that networking and and seeing what's going on with folks, yourself included, and others at TriStar on LinkedIn. So that's probably the best place to look at what I've been involved with. And that gives you a sense of, of where I've been and where I might be headed. Perfect. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Mid Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at tristartrust.com. <laughs>